Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and I'm delighted to be joined across the ocean by Robin Conroy. Hello there, and delighted to be back as well. Yeah, it's fun. I'm glad that you, you, you have moved away further from us, but we are still able to connect through the, the magic of the internet, <laughs> which is good because we, we're going to talk about Studio Ghibli today. And as our resident Risking Enchantment animator, I couldn't not have you on to discuss this topic. Yay! <laughs> But very quickly before we um, dive into it, I just wanted to say thanks again for your patience, everyone. I was a little late posting this episode. And in the meantime, I had to repost an old episode, which just had a technical difficulty with it. Uh, and then I realized I, I, I found it out quite late at night and I was like, oh, I think I fixed it. And then I looked at my phone and I saw it I published it to everyone's feed again. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> this is really confusing. So apologies. There, there was a re-release of an old episode just earlier this week, which hopefully it was maybe you listened to it again and enjoyed it again. Uh, but thank you very much for your patience with all technical difficulties. I'm, I've got my fingers crossed that we won't have any technical difficulties in recording this, but we are going to embrace it because I think this is such a fun, exciting topic that I've been wanting to do. It's been on my, in, in my Risking Enchantment notebook for ages, which it just says <laughs> Studio Ghibli dash Robin Conroy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that's the best. I'm very honored that I get to be the Studio Ghibli episode. So, and I've been kind of saving it to do it in the sort of spring season of the podcast because not only do we want to talk about the nature themes, but I just think to me, Studio Ghibli films are so rich in their natural uh, imagery that I like at this time of year. I just feel like it is absolutely the perfect time to dive into that that filmography and go through as many of them as you can. And I, I was watching some of them again recently myself. It was funny when I was preparing for this episode, as much as I was looking forward to it, I had a very limited amount of time when I could prepare for it. And so I was watching, not the films, but I was watching a, a documentary of interviews with Hayao Miyazaki, who we're going to be talking about as the founder of Studio Ghibli. And He's such a, like, his pace of life is so interesting and so creative and has a sense of stillness and zen to it. But I didn't have time to watch them, so I was watching them on, like, two times speed, which felt like a mortal sin with <laughs> Studio Ghibli. Like, it wasn't even the films, even just the interviews, it still felt totally wrong to be, like, cranking up the, <laughs> the yeah. speed. Give me the information, give me the information. <laughs> um, so, but I think maybe we should begin with a little bit of an introduction about what Studio Ghibli is. I think they're relatively well known for a, a lot of people, but I think we were also finding maybe in some areas of the world less less known than than we might have expected. So maybe Robin, do you want to give a bit of an introduction as to what Studio Ghibli is and the kinds of films that they make and the people involved? Yeah, absolutely. No problem. So Studio Ghibli are a Japanese animation studio. Um, they've been around since the kind of mid-1980s and were founded by Hayao Miyazaki. Um, and they're sort of like the conglomerate of Disney and Pixar in Japan in that they are kind of known for family films that are designed for like basically any, any age range to watch and also have like uh, a very yeah, just broad appeal uh, to the kind of Japanese market. Um, they, they kind of became famous in the Western world um, insofar as like anime is, is famous in any regard in the Western world um, in 2001 when they won the Oscar for Best Animated Feature for Spirited Away, which I'm not 100% sure if it still holds this title, but for a very long time, it was the only like non-Western film that had won in that category. It, it may well be still the case, but yeah. So that kind of like that kind of like launched them into the kind of Western uh, side of the world, and 
yeah, they've been they've been making kind of beautiful films ever since. Yeah, I think that that's a great introduction, and I think it's interesting to to see them as like a version of of family entertainment in the way that we might see Disney. In some ways, I would say almost more like an older school kind of Disney in that that there's, I think, I don't know, maybe that's unfair because the, there's a big range in the types of films that they they make, but there is a sort of dignified sensibility to them. They're less frenetic than a lot of, say, cartoons that we would maybe envisage now. Even, even just like to note, aside from one feature they haven't made the move to 3d cg animated films like almost all of their entire body of work is hand drawn and that in and of itself i think probably like lends itself to a a kind of a more timelessness yeah just like for sure and 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 yet they're very prestigious and highly acclaimed and i think it's notable like for anyone who's interested in exploring them but maybe isn't necessarily used to non-western films i think they're relatively accessible but also that you can view them at, I, I don't know whether it's this this is the case in america at the moment but certainly in irish netflix they have all of the studio ghibli films which you can watch in animation with subtitles but also there are dubbed versions in english which you know a lot of the time when films are dubbed they're not done particularly well or with a lot of care but these ones are actually dubbed by Disney. And so they do take a huge amount of care and production investment to make them work in, in English as well. And so, I don't know, it's, it, for me, it can be kind of a, a coin toss which version I'll watch because I think I definitely watched the English version of Spirited Away first and Howl's Moving Castle first. So I have a, a like a strong affinity for those. But then uh, I didn't, I actually came to films like My Neighbor Totoro quite late. And that one thought I was like, no, I want to watch that one in Japanese. So, mm-hmm. uh, but in, in that way, they can be very, they're, they're physically quite accessible in that way. They're not as intimidating as some foreign cinema. No, they're very thoughtful with their um, dubbing as well. Like you, you do have like star-studded cast, but it doesn't sound like uh, I don't know why. But I'm just thinking of Chris Pratt. When you hear Chris Pratt in a lot of animated films, it sounds like Chris Pratt, and that <laughs> they're very good at um, at choosing actors who really like melt into the roles, and so you're not you're not hearing the actor as the actor, but just like imbued into the character, which is lovely. And one of the things I love about their films is that they have a kind of united aesthetic sensibility. I think it's very, not just because they're anime, but I think they're, it's easy to tell which films are kind of uh, from this studio. But at the same time, I think they do a big range of different stories and then ha- all of them have a uniting common theme. And so j- just to clarify as well, in this particular episode, we're going to be kind of focusing specifically on the films that Hayao Miyazaki himself wrote and directed. Uh, that's not the sum total of all of the work at Studio Ghibli. There are other films which his son, his work partner has made, his, like, you know, there there are a range of different films. Although, for you know, Studio Ghibli is in many ways his kind of baby, and so his mm. thumbprint is in a lot of the films regardless uh, but we are I think mainly going to focus on the films that he specifically has been kind of at the helm of creating just because I think it makes it easier to to draw out some of the themes that he's particularly interested in and the kind of preoccupations that he's dealing with in the stories that he's telling because he, he creates stories in quite a, a unique way which is to not plot them out and to be sort of image led and to be led by his own drawings to form a, what he calls kind of non-logical plots sometimes that I it, that makes it sound like they're sort of crazy and frenetic and I don't think they are I think they do have plots but they just don't run in exactly the same way as like the three-act structure that's the, mm-hmm. the basis of every especially every kids film but I have a quote here uh from uh I, I it's from I think it's Stephen Gray Danis's kind of introduction to Studio Ghibli I think we referenced Stephen Gray Danis quite a bit he does a lot of Catholic film reviewing but he he says about Hayao Miyazaki's films though his films range quite a bit in setting tone approach and target audience from alternative futures or pasts to dreamlike or nightmarish departures from the world as we know it 
from sweet family films to chilly, even violent mythic sagas, a number of recurring aesthetic, dramatic and moral themes run through Miyazaki's films. Characteristic visual motifs include gorgeous pastoral imagery, lush, verdant trees and forests, sprawling meadows, massive cumulus formations drifting through spectacularly blue skies, magnificently rendered architecture of every conceivable type, ancient castles of mothy, vine-swathed stonework, quaint seaside towns, traditional Japanese structures, as well as detailed technology, whether of period or sci-fi. So I think that gives you like a, the kind of scope and the range. In terms of the films that I think are most famous from Miyazaki, I, as we mentioned, My, My Neighbor Totoro, which I feel like was one of their earliest, biggest films, definitely sits in that sweet family, pastoral, idyllic kind of category. Whereas Spirited Away, like you said, is much more like a sort of kind of fairy tale with a lot of, it's almost like a Japanese Dickensian kind of fantasy story with a lot of different characters. And it's set in a, a bathhouse for the spirits and it's got a lot more drama and action to it. And whereas I think one of his earliest films, Nausicaa, is very much more like a sci-fi sort of threatening. And again, it mentioned sort of mythic uh, sagas. I think that's probably referencing Princess Mononoke, which is sort of an eco-fable and ancient medieval myth at the same time. So you can see there's a big range, which then makes it interesting that they do have this kind of unifying sense to them. And I think, as I mentioned before, the thing that sort of comes to the fore is a real love in all of these films for the natural world and almost the, the human place within the natural world, like how we as humans should be interacting with it, should be thinking of it and should be caring for it and stewarding it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, I think I was reading an article that, that uh, said that like, if you could like use one word to sum up an experience of like watching a Miyazaki film, it's like wonder. And I feel that like really, resonates with me as um as a viewer that he's really there's something almost like childlike in the attention to the like details of the world that you kind of inhabit whether it is you know a sort of a semi-dystopian past mystical world with with um with fables and, and creatures, or if it's just like children running through a forest in a in a, a rice pat or like a rice paddy, but just there's a real sense of uh, delight in the details of the world, which really makes it stand out from a lot of like what we're familiar with with animation as a medium or as a like a way of of watching. There's there's like a a lot of like frenetic pacing that we see in a lot of animation today and it's um it's very refreshing to see Miyazaki's just delight in like the little things in the the small details whether it's uh in My Neighbor Totoro like May the two-year-old girl is exploring um a new house that they've purchased but it's it's not really a new house it's it's quite an old house that they've gotten a good deal on and you're just getting to see her explore all the nooks and crannies, the the dusty parts of of corners of abandoned rooms, or playing in the grass. And it's he takes the time just to like sit with her and experience the world through the eyes of a two year old little girl, um, with that sense of like wonder and delight in, in creation. That's just a uh, really delightful to to accompany, you know. Yeah, I think that's so key because I feel like even when his films have a more, let's say, narrative or drama-driven kind of motion through them, they never don't have a core sense of stillness to them, that, mm. that ability to take the time to zone in on something really small. I think a lot of people mentioned from Spirited Away, which, like I said, it, the scene in question comes at the end of quite a, a sort of crazy scene of running downstairs and, and meeting a, a sort of strange new creature with a lot of arms and and all of this but there's there's a moment where 
um, Chihiro, the main character, puts back on her shoes. And the animators take the time to just have her sort of tap her foot down into her shoe and like adjust the the back of her, of the heel of her shoe. And it's just things like that. And in that, that's a very human moment. But I think Miyazaki as well really allows for the space to do that in, in the natural moment. And it comes from, it's, when you watch interviews with Miyazaki, it so clearly comes from his own sense of observation of the world. I mean, it's not really surprising that someone who's clearly a genius at at animating would be so good at observing the world. But at the same time, it is kind of unique to him and his style. And I, I you know, in some of the clips that I was watching, he was sort of reprimanding <laughs> some of his his workers for not not actually basing their their animations on reality. He was getting them to draw essentially a, a baby. I think it might have been a baby fish or a baby insect, but it was a baby nonetheless. And he, he said, oh, babies don't move their heads that assertively, you know, that like you should know this, you should be watching babies and you should take the time to notice how they observe the world or how they move in the world or how they mm -hmm. interact with the space around them. And he's just like that for everything that like, he's just, I think you mentioned him like, like looking super closely at the, the leaves on a plant as he's drawing it to really get to the heart of what is the essence of this, this plant. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that we can take from these films, which is that, it really highlights to me how much of creation is a gift and how and we're going to get on to how Miyazaki's coming from it from a particularly Japanese cultural uh, perspective and not necessarily a Christian one. And so his perspective on this is slightly different. But from a Catholic and a Christian point of view, we do very much understand and know that Christ came for us as humankind, that we are peculiar in all of creation for this um, and we are special but at the same time I think it's wrong to think of it like oh we're the only special thing in creation which is otherwise just existing so that we can be special in it but rather that God is the creator of everything and while we may be the kind of crowning glory at the end of it that doesn't mean that he doesn't delight and take joy in all of creation yeah absolutely um and i think that's really like key to like i guess miyazaki's vision of the good that is in nature is that it actually draws us out of ourselves and our a sort of like uh, a shielded protected kind of um blinkered vision of uh reality that to be spending time in nature kind of like naturally kind of connects you with something outside of yourself. He has a quote here uh, talking about Chihiro from Spirited Away. And when he was making Spirited Away, he'd made a couple of films at that point. He'd made My Neighbor Totoro. He'd made uh, Kiki's Delivery Service. And both of these films had sort of Kiki has like a, a coming of age kind of story about a 13 year old and Totoro is about much younger girls who are kind of like two to five and he was like I haven't done a, a 10 year old yet and so he wanted to tell a story about a 10 year old and so he was he was reading a lot of um like books geared towards 10 year old girls at the time and they were all just about like silly kind of romance type stories and he was he basically thought, like, I want to tell a story about a, a real girl that will, like, speak to the hearts of real 10-year-old girls. And just as a side note, it's actually one of the things that's very notable about his films in general is that he does highlight uh, female stories a lot of the time. He, he just finds it more interesting, personally, to, like, have women as, like, the protagonists of his stories. And that's just, like, a, a, a nice kind of aside that that it is a, an interesting lens that he often chooses young women to kind of like be the, the central characters of his stories. I think the thing that I also love specifically about that is, is that, as we've mentioned, it's, it comes from a place of attentiveness and observation that like it's not just a question of taking a moral stance of saying, well, I'm going to tell stories about women. But then not, I often feel like sometimes that when I see that the result is stories where, where it just feels like, 
that this was the only criteria and that was and that it's not integrated into the story whereas these Miyazaki films they're female protagonists they are genuine stories about them that he is actually mm-hmm. trying to delve into like a girl's perspective and also her humanity her virtues all of the amazing things about this particular character um and so yeah i think it's it's a beautiful aspect to it and yet it doesn't it it also isn't necessarily in the same way that we might look at something now and say well well we need more female protagonists regardless of quality (laughs) exactly yeah and like i think that it's it's very clear that um despite the kind of fantastical natures of the worlds that a lot of these characters inhabit that he's really trying to portray people who feel real, who feel normal. Like when he wanted to to create Hero for Spirit Away, he wanted to make a real little girl who had like real flaws. And I remember there's a quote he says to, again, one of his colleagues where he said, You're, you shouldn't be animating characters, you're animating people. And that a crowd is just a group of people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, somebody said to me recently that like, if you want to build community with your goal, you're going to likely kill community. But if you want to love people, then you have an actual opportunity to really build community. And yeah, that, that feels like um, yeah. true to this to this way of looking at people in film as well. But anyway, so this, this quote basically says, today's children feel shielded, protected, and distanced from reality to the point where they only have a vague sense of what it means to be alive, where their only solution is to inflate their otherwise weak sense of self and Chihiro's skinny limbs and her deliberately miffed and apathetic expressions are a symbol of this. But as reality sets in and she directly confronts danger from which she cannot easily extricate herself, she demonstrates an adaptability and toughness that even she had not been aware of. She realizes that she has a life force in her that makes her capable of bold decisions and action. And I think the way that he is, the way that he creates animated and dynamic characters is also echoed in the way that he creates animated and dynamic landscapes and worlds that we inhabit. And that sense that, that there's a connectedness there, that creation is beautiful and good, and that we actually we see a mirror of our own beautiful goodness um, when we see the goodness of creation. Hildegard von Bingham has a really cool concept, um, and if people don't know, Hildegard von Bingham is a Benedictine abbess from the 11th century, and she's a doctor of the church and a polymath and just general, like, awesome lady. (laughs) (laughs) But she has this idea of viritudis, I'm probably mispronouncing that, or viriditudis, it's it's a, um, a Latin word that basically means, like, greenness or lushness, and she has this concept that 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 sort of like greenness and vitality that we see present in the natural world is also present in the human soul. And so much in a similar way that like a plant has a readiness to receive the sun and be like transformed by its light and its warmth, that our own souls have like a readiness to receive God's divine light and that we can actually by being present and attentive to nature by cultivating it, by tending to it, we actually are more what we are meant to be. Yeah, I think that Miyazaki really like captures that in the ways that he both portrays people and the the environment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe that's a great starting off point because I think we should explore some of what Miyazaki thinks and is portraying about the environment. And as as I've already mentioned, it's not strictly from a Christian perspective, but I think that what you've just said there really sets up how it does all come back to it and that we have some further examples as well that, we, that we're going to come back to. But yeah, I think that's a wonderful frame for remembering that there is this deep interconnectedness, that we are part of creation and that so when we rejoice in our own creation, uh, we can rejoice in the creation around us as well. And Mm -hmm. yeah, and I think it's really interesting. So I I feel like if you were taking a sort of straw man stand against Miyazaki and say, this this isn't a Christian thing, you might come from it from two perspectives. The first is that he, while 
not I don't haven't come across much information that suggests that he's very strictly religious. He does have an integrated sense of what is in the Shinto uh, religious perspective of the Japanese culture, which is this idea of the world having spirits in multiple different places and these spirits can be worshipped they can have shrines to them they can give good luck I certainly wouldn't claim to be an expert in it but it does it does feel like in a lot of ways it's relatively unstructured but at the same time it is real to people as well it's not just like a vague sense in which, uh, like a like a past superstition, that there is still a kind of vitality to this belief that you should pay some kind of homage or acknowledgement to the spirits that might be the spirits that are in your house or of a particular tree or in a particular location or stones or things like that. And of course, from a Christian point of view, we don't believe that. But... There is a sense in which I feel like when I'm watching it, <laughs> that it, it, not that it is true, but that it is actually getting at a truth that is relatively close to what God might wish for us to understand about his creation, which is that we underestimate how much of his spirit and his goodness is flowing through the gift of creation. And that we can enter into a sort of more mythological perspective or more spiritual perspective of the world. And that doesn't mean becoming pantheist. It doesn't mean worshiping creation itself. That is the different. It is not God itself, but that we can find a greater sense of the wonder of God's creative power and force and love by observing nature in, in that way yeah absolutely um yeah my understanding is that Miyazaki doesn't necessarily like fully believe like the 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 truth of like the Shinto religion so mm -hmm. much as having like a deep fondness for the ways in which it makes you look at the world yeah. um I think he said something along the lines that he likes the idea that we should all treasure everything because you know there may be something within that um and that there's a kind of life that like is imbued within everything um and yeah I think I think you like hit the nail on the head that it's that whilst we don't believe that like there are specific spirits that like inhabit particular parts of the natural world that that doesn't mean that we can't have a like an enchanted sense of of just how like delightful and miraculous creation is as it currently stands, you know, yeah. uh, with, yeah. without adornment, uh, you know, that the enchantment is almost like present in its very existence, you know. Absolutely. Um, and that there is a sense in which we can, I don't know, enter into it more earnestly. I have a quote here, but this quote says, by stressing the intrinsic value of all things and harmony amongst them, Miyazaki is saying, and Christians, especially the Lewises and Tolkens of the world, will largely agree that first people need to re-mythologize the world. For instance, we need to remember that trees grow because of spiritual causes. For Miyazaki, Totoro's Shinto Norito, or prayer, helps the acorn to sprout, and for Christians, the word of God causes all nature not only to be, but continue to be. Second, by remythologizing the world, we will then be in a better position to see the value of all things, which will in turn prevent us as consumers from buying products that are the result of injustice. We will not be like Chihiro's parents in Spirited Away, who consume the food of the gods, which is a metaphor for abusing the natural world, and are turned into pigs. And finally, by refusing to be shallow consumers, we will put a stop to the corrupt industry and the abuse of technology. If we can do all these things, we might conclude, as Ashitaka does at the end of Princess Mononoke, this time we'll build a better town. That is to say, a town, a product of technology, but not built on injustice and dissonance. And I think that's beautiful. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is the way in which 
that shows the two sides of the same coin that I think is expressed in in Miyazaki, which is that he does call his viewers to take more action about the environment and to be better stewards of it. But he has a very interesting and somewhat um, enigmatic view of technology <laughs> because he admits that he loves it. And he does, he, his father actually it was a manufacturer for parts for aeroplanes during the war. And again, he has quite conflicted feelings about that. He is appalled by the war. He's appalled that his family made money off the war. Um, and yet he loves planes. And it does come down to, he just says, oh, they're just amazing. Like, I love them, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't <laughs> and, think there is a film that doesn't involve flying. In no. And, you know, and he also recognizes animation as part of technology. And I think he has an interesting quote, which is, you know people who designed airplanes and machines, no matter how much they believe what they do is good, the winds of time eventually turn them into tools of in industrial civilization. It is never unscathed. They are cursed dreams. Animation too. Yeah. <laughs> and I think he's even been quoted as saying like children should only watch like an animated film once or twice a year. Like, which is just so yeah. Funny. I think he says that and says, and the rest of the time be outside. Cause I think yeah, he's, yeah. he's really conscious. He, he feels terrible that, that children, the idea of his films was to inspire children to go outside, not to sit inside and watch his films all day, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, he sees himself as, as being kind of, equivocal in this in this particular perspective but with that in mind I think he has a slightly ambiguous feeling about how much we can strong arm technology into fixing the world or bringing about the kind of the 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 environmental changes that we want I think he has optimism like he he his characters are all about action and I think that's one of the things that you were bringing up about the way that he embodies these characters that they he talks about them as being like you draw the will you draw the intent you're not mm. drawing fate you're drawing action and just really interesting ideas about things like that but at the same time so much of it is actually focused on becoming m more interiorly a, mo a better moral person and from there like you said with the quote from Hildegard von Bingen when we heal the kind of the brokenness that's inside, we can hope to find a more verdant environment around us. Like we, like that quote just drew out that like, we'll make it better this time, but it only comes from actually solving some of the interior problems. And I think in some ways he can be quite negative in his view of whether it is, a, is like, whether action in terms of technology to try and solve all of our problems would actually be the solution. And rather it's to turn to a better cultivation of virtue mm, mm, absolutely yeah and also just even the intentionality that he like he's not coming from a christian perspective so he doesn't have like the the viewpoint that we would have of being like stewards of nature and and mm -hmm. kind of um distinct in our role in that way but he he's not really an environmentalist in a sort of a a strong sort of a we got to do these things because it's the right thing to do and he, he his he's not so much an envi environmentalist as just that he like loves nature and um a lot of his like desire to like to uh affect change in our environment and to like protect the natural world is because it's it's like wonderful for us to be observers of it and i think in some ways that that the, one of the areas in which he is slightly separate to the way that we would view the world is that he is much more in this what i believe is a much more japanese sensibility which is to say that humans aren't special they are just one of you know any amount of organisms in the world and that everything has its own rights and that um you know, we should be yeah. learning how to live within the world and not dominate the world. And I think that's really interesting because, again, like I said, that is strictly not what a Catholic believes. Um, mm -hmm. That is not a Christian way of understanding the world. We do actually, like I said, Christ came to, to, 
came in the in the form of a man to save us and so we have a particular distinction within creation and so that is separate to us and and in some ways can lend a slightly there can be shades of the films in which it does feel like a sense of nihilism about humanity because like I th- I'm thinking of Nausicaa and he sort of makes the case for these. He he has this this real bugbear about not overly anthropomorphizing creatures that like the kind of Disneyification with big eyes and like, a, you know, a very human face on a bunny rabbit or whatever it is, because he says that makes it too easy. It's almost like cheating. Like, of course, you care about the bunny that looks like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> But so in in the film Nausicaa, which is about a decaying planet that the main, again, female character is trying to save and, you know, nothing can grow. And there's these sort of attacking, horrible, big insect creatures. And the film is making the case that they have just as much a right to exist as the humans. And we wouldn't necessarily completely see it that way. But again, I just in my own perspective I feel like there's still so much for us to draw from that which is like I've been saying about stewardship and about existing within the world and rejoicing in it and not just consuming it as he said being consumers of the world which is such an ingrained way of living in the modern world which we don't even think about it and even if it goes maybe a step further than we would take it drawing us towards that perspective of being in creation I think is a positive thing yeah and I just want to point out that I think he actually does do a very he makes a very good case for why the ohm which are these these big bug creatures in Nazca actually like are worthy of like being like protected and cared for as well and like we said they probably they don't have the same like value as as human beings do but there's a sense in which that there's like there is just a goodness in them that is not immediately apparent, but when Nausicaa like takes the time to to be with them and to observe them, that she actually sees that they are they are much more than what they like externally appear to be. Um, mm. That's something that I think is applicable in in many many respects. Yeah, absolutely, and it just shows that it, it's so much more nuanced. And I think that's what the Studio Ghibli films are actually really good at doing is is conveying a sense of nuance even to children I think it's kind of interesting that he rarely deals with like strictly there are good characters but in terms of the villains at the very least they're not just they don't tend to be out and out baddies in the same way that like Maleficent in Sleeping Beauty is just bad you know there's no there's no other there's no other defining characteristic of her and I think you know I think that's that that can have its own kind of interesting narrative but he does a really good job of showing that you can make bad moral decisions it's not about saying that like oh it doesn't matter what you do or like they're just doing their version of what's right he shows failings but he also shows compassion and he shows redemption and he shows forgiveness and even reconciliation between the characters I'm particularly thinking of of Howl's Moving Castle which of course is based on a a Welsh author Diana Wynne Jones's stories which I would really recommend it we have done an episode on Howl's Moving Castle (laughs) so if anyone wants to listen to it but that like that sense of being able to embrace the kind of nuances and I think that also extends to the way that he views his that like like, as you said he doesn't really view himself as an environmentalist but the way that he views his interactions with the environmental world because he doesn't demonize humans for being alive either as much as we're saying he is trying to assert the rights of other creatures and other beings within creation he he is so strong on the sense that life is good and he's actually very pro people having families people having having kids and that people who live in cities have a right to exist and that life itself is good and that that's a theme that comes up again that living is good life is good and he has a a quote this is about princess mononoke but i think it really sums up a lot of it where he says it would be so easy to create a scheme that depicts humans as inane with bad people cutting down trees and good Mm -hmm. people protecting them but it would be entirely unrelated to the essence of human beings it is more likely that those 
people who were hardworking and kind to their neighbours were the ones who, in an effort to improve living conditions, carved up the mountains and dispersed the animals. It is not enough to go around saying that we have to respect nature, that we should always live in a pure and proper life in nature. If that's the case, what should today's people who have to live in cities do? Aren't their lives of value? Well, I certainly think they are. Mm. And it, it, in a way, it's honestly more challenging that way mm. because it's very easy for us to look at like a, a very ham-fisted environmental message that's about like a guy with a chainsaw chopping down all the trees. And we're like, none of us sees ourselves in that person, you know? <laughs> um, but like one of the biggest antagonist in Princess Mononoke is this lady who is like protecting a leper colony and trying to like um, you know bring it a town through like a really difficult period of time where they're not making enough food and it's like it's really understandable she's she's very understandable in how she's trying to to find ways to like care for these people um in her care it just makes it a lot more more nuanced and a lot more challenging for our own ways that we interface with the natural world um because you know it's it's uh it's a lot more human absolutely i think that that's so spot on and so i think it just to me it's so interesting to try and draw what lessons from a catholic perspective we could pull from from some of this i think your point that you had earlier on hildegard von bingen is just so perfect and i had one similarly like to me this just speaks to how this kind of perspective does have its own place in in a, in a Christian audience's kind of retinue. Because <laughs> what I really thought of when I was doing the research on this was uh, I was thinking of the poetry of Jared Manley Hopkins, who was a Jesuit poet from the, the Victorian era. He was actually... John Henry Newman was one of the people who helped him to convert. He was he was in the priesthood, I believe, in the in the Anglican Church. Uh, but he was an amazing poet, an amazing nature poet, and he developed this idea called inscape and instress, which was based on a medieval kind of philosophy about the individuality and uniqueness of each item of creation. And so uh, InScape has been rendered variously as external design, aesthetic conception, intrinsic beauty, intrinsic form of a thing, a form perceived in nature. So you can see it's trying to get at the essence or the identity of a thing. And uh, that, you know, H Hopkins felt that the everything in the universe was dis characterized by this InScape and that when he was writing his poetry, he was trying to craft or express this individual identity. And I think in some ways, is that not so close to saying that there is a, a particular spirit associated with bluebells or with uh, waterfalls or, you know, any of these things that like when we're actually delving into the uniqueness of everything in creation. And it reminded me because we had Eleanor Parker on at the first episode of this year for The Winters in the World. And she was talking about the medieval poem. And as I said, Jeremy Hopkins was really inspired by medieval poetry. And I was thinking of Maxims, which is this series of uh, descriptions of the world where each poem deals with a piece of animals or nature. And it's so it, like it's assigning where the proper place for each and everything is so a bird should be aloft playing in the air a boar should be in the wood strong with fixed tusks and even a dragon should be in a barrow old proud in its treasures you know i love it i love it, it it's such a great expression and shows how in the medieval christian conception that there was a rightness and a properness and in some ways it feels like the studio ghibli films there is this overwhelming feeling of rightness and properness to them, that they just feel like worlds in which you want to exist in because that's almost how the world ought to be. Mm -hmm. And that they're expressing something that speaks really deeply to how, I, I don't know, maybe it's almost like the Tolkien thing of like glimpses of Eden, that we feel like we're catching things as they should be and that creation is so integral to that. Yes, absolutely. I even, yeah, I even think of like Therese of Lisieux as like the little flower looking at, um, and, it, and it echoes with what you were saying about like this 
the specificity and this like sense in which we're each here for a particular reason and that there's a particularity of us that like she was able to look at a a small delicate flower in the same way that Miyazaki would look at a small delicate flower and go there is like great goodness and great beauty in that and that I, I am like that as well, that if God has put something on the earth that is this way, then it's okay for me to be this way as well. <laughs> and, and that like creation is made to be like very diverse and um, distinct in that way to kind of like help us to like recognize our own kind of distinct uh, goodness in our own individuality, you know? And I think that another way in which he really expresses that to me is as much as we've talked about his nature and his, you know, his natural and wild landscapes. And, you know, I think he does those so well. They range from the like so comforting and restful to the sort of especially when you get near the like like the divine creatures, they have that sort of threatening awe. He's also really good at not just portraying nature as like, oh, a nice thing. Like it's also threatening. It also is scary. It also has its own power and is not totally mm. under our control. I think that's important as well because I think that, again, it would be to almost anthropomorphize the countryside, which is like make it totally friendly and unthreatening. But not only does he do that, but I think he's so great at, as well at um, actually urban landscapes or like interior landscapes. Like you talked about the house in, in My Neighbor Totoro, as much as the, the fields around the house are beautiful, the house itself has such a level of humanity to it. There's so much detail. There's so, they're so richly textured. There's something about the clutteredness of yeah. the homes and the the living spaces in Studio Ghibli films that has, I don't know, to me, it's, it maybe is a bit far-fetched, but it almost has like a human dignity to them that they're not for show, they're not on display, they're full of things for people and collected by people who love mm -hmm. them. And the same with the the cities and and the backdrops behind a lot of, of the stories. Because one of the things that I really love about Miyazaki is as much as it is sort of the quintessential Japanese animation, that he draws really loving, lovingly from all kinds of cultural references and history and literature. And he has a huge love for the Western canon, and certainly I believe the kind of, the, the sort of, the stock answer is that he began making more Western-based stories and then became disillusioned after the fall of the Soviet Empire with the West and started reinvesting in some of the ideas around his own country and expressing them. But I, in some ways, I feel like that's too simplistic. I do think there was always a, a Japanese love in his his films and at the same time I don't think he's totally dropped the western element now that he's done more sort of Japanese based stories as well but to me it just goes to show how in some ways it is almost like the sum total of what I would love to achieve with this podcast which is to show that like all of the great bank of creative expression and all of the amazing things that the the human civilization and the human mind has done over all of these centuries is at our disposal. And when we're able to really invest in them, it doesn't dissipate us to make us more like everything else. It actually allows us to express ourselves in our own particularity even closer. And mm. I, I, was, I was thinking of that in Spirited Away because it's this super Japanese bathhouse, like it just couldn't be more distinctly Japanese and yet he has Yubaba who's the sort of the witch who runs it and is sort of a, a, a sinister character I don't think she's necessarily strictly evil but she's sort of an interestingly her motivations are not necessarily in your favor mm. but she's in this super pseudo western style like space and she you know and and then the next film he makes is Howl's Moving Castle, which, like I said, is a Welsh fairy tale. Um, and he just looking at the interviews with him, he's constantly referencing all kinds of art and 
um, culture. Like there was someone who was asking him, he drew, he drew a little picture from his film Ponyo, which he then said was like essentially the, the basis of the rest of the story. Like he had done drawings before that, but once he did this drawing, this was kind of the foundational moment. And it's just this little figure standing on top of like essentially a sea of fish, like it's all riding fish. Mm. And uh, so someone asked him, so what inspired that? And he goes, oh, the ride of the Valkyries. You know, <laughs> um, and so he's drawing on Wagner while making this incredibly Japanese story. And I just think mm-hmm. that it's so reassuring. And I, I've got a, a quote here where he says, I created a world where Yubaba lives in a pseudo Western style to make it seem as if it were something that has been seen somewhere else and to make it uncertain whether it is a dream or reality. Also, Japanese traditional design is a rich source for imagination. We are often not aware of the richness and uniqueness of our cultural heritage from stories, traditions, rites, designs, and tales of the gods. Surrounded by high technology and flimsy devices, children are more and more losing their roots. We must inform them of the richness of our traditions. I think the world of film can have a striking influence by fulfilling the traditional functions as a piece of vividly colored mosaic to a story which can be applied today. That means at the same time, we can gain a new understanding of what it means to be residents of this island colony. Hmm. What a, what a great, way to kind of round out what we were thinking on this yeah he's and i there's just such a beauty to to the the people that he shows as well like even when you were talking about hell's moving castle that sense of like you're you're talking about children having a sense of uh a rootedness in their history and he he has like hell's moving castle the protagonist is an old lady for most of the film and like I think that's that's something really wonderful as well. Yeah, that and that like age isn't something to be afraid of and that there's goodness. And as we mentioned before, he has this real sense of will and action. And I think in a very kind of blunt way, but it's it's funny how quickly you can overlook it, that like the word animator is to give life, that in some ways it's such a direct sub-creation in that way that you're actually trying mm-hmm. to breathe life in, into 2D drawings that I think if we can't learn something about our creator from animation like that, that just feels <laughs> like it, it, especially one that is so in tune with like I the words that I was just thinking of were like vitality and vigor and energy and yet with all of these things a sense of stillness and observation it's not the hustle of activity, it's the stillness of something fully alive, you know? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Yeah, there truly is something very beautiful in our our capacity to like sub-create and um, to find beauty in the observation of um, of reality and in the the kind of the creating um, born out of viewing a created world you know yeah absolutely and so i think we'll maybe close it out here i maybe i think would it be fun if we just gave one film recommendation each from the the studio ghibli film (laughs) hard to do that's so hard (laughs) um yeah do you want to go first uh yeah sure since, since let me I, think I'm, I'm, I'm gonna like pull up the the film see if I, I think can. I think my favorite is probably Spirited Away or maybe Howl's Moving Castle but we have spoken about them a bit already and so I'll go for one which I don't believe is a Miyazaki one but um maybe he wrote the screenplay for it rather but he didn't direct it which is Whisper of the Heart which is just (laughs) that is a a fantastic one for an urban landscape and it being just beautiful and human and it's just about a young girl I think it's just at the start of her summer holidays and she meets a boy and the the boy and his family make musical instruments and that inspires her to go and finally write a book that she's been wanting to write for a long time and again it's just like a very simple quiet story it's not necessarily high drama but it is full of moments of humanity and uh, kindness and all of these great virtues that 
in some ways feel like they can get overlooked in a lot of narratives, which is just a gentleness and a kindness. And, you know, that's in his female characters, but it's in his male characters as well. Mm. That, you know, these, these sensibilities do actually win out and that it is a good thing to cultivate them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're coming to this fresh, I do think that, like, like Rachel said, that, like, Hell's Moving Castle, Castle or Spirited Away are good jumping off points. Um, I, I love Princess Mononoke. I think that's probably up there with one of my personal favorites. Um, it's kind of the closest he gets to sort of a Lord of the Rings style epic. Um, <laughs> that it, it's not quite to the same scale but it's um it's it's perhaps got the most interesting and kind of challenging take on the sort of environmental message and how that relates to like the dignity of of the human person and the dignity of the natural world and how those things kind of interact with each other and it also just looks uh so good <laughs> oh there's so many um, yeah the red the red turtle is also amazing, and that's like a, a much lesser known one. I'm just like saying a bunch of them now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you want like pure nature, the red turtle. That's also that one was made in collaboration with a French studio, and and honestly inspired um my short film quite a lot in the ways that they depict depict the natural world. So, um, that one's uh, almost entirely silent. I don't think there's actually any words in it. Mm. Um, so it's really it's a very meditative experience. So yeah, Red Turtle, if you want something that's like fully into that, like just basking in the natural world. And then um, Princess Mononoke, if you want something that's going to like really challenge you and make you think. Awesome. And as you mentioned, you did do your own short film, which was highly um, embedded in nature. And so I'll make sure to link that in the show notes below for anyone who wants to, to look at it. It's a beautiful video that I've enjoyed multiple times. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I think that all that leaves us with is what are we enjoying at the moment? And I think I'll start, but I know what I'm going to say is a collective thing <laughs> that both of us are enjoying at the moment. Um, our friend P.O. Hartnett is releasing his first EP this week. Um, I believe it should come out around the same time that this episode publishes. Uh, his uh, EP is called Cargo. I know it will be on Spotify. I presume it will be in a lot of other spaces. And, you know, as much as we've mentioned, he is a friend of ours. I am honestly just a, f a, a fan of his music. It's really great. I'm so excited. 100%. <laughs> he had a, a launch concert last night, which uh, I, I was lucky enough to attend. And yeah, it'll be a really fantastic release. So I'm looking forward to it and already enjoying the singles that are currently out. So definitely check out P.O. Hartnett's uh, new music. Yeah, absolutely. And that would be probably at the top of my list as well. If I, <laughs> if I to be entirely honest, like I, I just love it, his stuff so much. But I am going to uh, say another artist that I've just been like having on repeat at the moment, which is callback to a previous uh, Risky Enchantment episode. It's the music of uh, Joe, which is Joe Keery, who plays Steve from Stranger Things. Fun. <laughs> um who actually has um yeah really good uh fun music that like draws on like quite a lot of like interesting like 80s and 90s um musical references but not necessarily the like super synthy like stranger things musical um palette but uh yeah it's it's just very fun uh, music that i've been listening to a lot um content warning there is some like language there so just like be discerning with how you feel about that? And then other than that, this is actually the first episode post-Easter. Um, the last episode came out just around Palm Sunday. So we're kind of well into the Easter season at this stage. But I would still like to wish all of our listeners a very happy Easter and a happy Pentecost coming up. And hope you are enjoying the feasting. 
And thanks very much, as I said, for bearing with me with the few little technical hitches and delays and things like that. Uh, fingers crossed this recording seems to have recorded fine. So thank you, Lord, for that. And uh, we'll have a new episode for you again soon. And thanks so much for listening. If you want to get any updates for when there are new episodes, you can uh, sign up to our newsletter on my website, which is at rachelsherlock.com forward slash podcast. And otherwise, you can follow us on Instagram. We've got quite a few Instagram followers now, which is lovely. So you can follow us there at Risking Enchantment Podcast. And other than that, as I said, thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin McLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless. Mm-hmm.